I want to invite you guys to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And while you're doing that, I want to add my welcome to Matt's welcome. Uh, it's so good to see all of you, but especially good to see some faces of people I don't know and to, to greet you as you worship here with us for the first time. I especially want to welcome you if you're here as somebody who's considering Christianity. Maybe you not been to a church before or aren't familiar with the claims of Christianity. I hope that today, by the end of our time, you'll understand a little bit more about what Christians believe and that you'll know you have friends in us who would love to talk to you more if you're interested. Uh, one of the most important beliefs that Christians hold is the belief that the God that made us and that made everything else that is, the God who's given you every breath that you've ever taken, has spoken to us so that we can know Him, understand Him, and love Him. Christians believe that he has spoken to us in the things that he's made. If you look around you at the beauty of the world, at things that are, that, that, are, that are basic to your life that you depend on and can't do without, that you couldn't have made for yourself, you're seeing truth about God all around you. But God hasn't just left us to see evidence of him in the things that he's made. Christians believe that God has also spoken to us in words that we can hear and read and understand that he's spoken to us as surely as you might speak to a friend or a family member, as surely as you might have a conversation with anyone that you know, God has conversed with us. And that the record of what he said to us comes to us in the Bible. That belief is the reason that for Christians, when we gather, the most important thing we do each week, what gathers us each week is God's words to us. And at the center of our time, like, like this time we're having this morning, is a time where we take a part of God's word and we do our best to understand it. We try to take into account where it comes from, who wrote it, who they wrote it to, what the historical factors were, what the language tells us about this message that's being communicated. We try to take into account everything we can to, to be true to its context and how that might be different from ours. But ultimately what we're trying to do is understand what has God said to us and what does God want from us through what he's said to us. So that's what we're going to do together now in the next little bit of time here in our, in our, in our time together this morning. We're going to walk through a part of a letter, one of the earliest documents produced by Christians, a letter that was written by one of Jesus' friends, a man who lived with him, walked with him, heard him speak, saw what he did, saw him die, and then saw him alive again. It's a man named Peter who wrote this letter to new Christians that he probably had never met before, uh, who, who, were, who were byproducts of this message of Christianity spreading further and further and further throughout the ancient Roman world. And they had heard, but they, they had heard about Jesus, but would surely have known very little about what it would mean to believe in him and trust in him and live for him in their context, because it would mean something radically different than anything they've ever known before. So Peter writes this letter to them as a kind of primer. Here's who you are if you're a Christian. And here's what it'll look like for you to live as one who belongs to a kingdom that's coming while you still live here now in this place that God has put you. He's writing to help them understand what that should look like because he knows they've got a hard road ahead of them. Now, um, before now in this letter, up until the part we're going to look at this morning, we've been watching as Peter has described the hope of all Christians. One of the things that defines us as Christians is, is a hope based on something Jesus has done in history and then promises that he's made to us because of what he's done. So, so in this first part of the letter, Peter starts with that, with God and his action and his offer to anyone who will believe in him and trust in him. We've been walking verse by verse through this early part of the letter trying to understand what God has done and how we might claim it. Today, we reach a kind of pivot point in this letter. 
In the section we're going to look at today in chapter 2, Peter has, has taken all this work that he's done to help us understand what our hope is and why, it, why it's worth hoping in and how God protects it and preserves it and gives it to us. He's taking all that he's done about hope and he's applying it to our identity. Before then, from here on out, he's going to take up issue by issue, case by case, places in their world and in ours where our identity as Christians might cause us to stand out from the world around us, might mean us looking like foreigners in the places that we live. Before he gets to those cases, which we'll start taking up one by one next week, he sums up for us who we are if we're Christians. So what that means for us today is that we're going to spend some time talking about identity. There is nothing antiquarian about this issue that Peter puts in front of us. It's not just a chance to look back at what one ancient writer thought at that time in that place. It's far more than that. Because what Peter takes up in the passage we're going to look at this morning are questions that no one can avoid. Now, you can, you can hide from them for a time. You, can, you cannot take them up seriously and consider them. But you have default answers to the questions Peter is addressing this morning. And they are having a tremendous effect on your life, whether you recognize them or not. And so what we get to do this morning, through Peter's words, is try to pull back the veil on something we might not have paid close enough attention to yet. What are the fundamental pieces to who you are? How do you know? Where does that sense of yourself come from and what's the point of your life to begin with the burning question that Peter takes up this morning is the question of identity who are you and that question getting it right is the difference between a life that's meaningful and one that's wasted it's that important friends what I want to do together this morning is take up three questions underneath the big question. Who are you? That's the, that's the question Peter's addressing. But there are three other questions that contribute to that big one that I want to take one by one, drawing from what Peter says. I frame these not as points that Peter's making, though he's making points, but as questions for you because my, my goal will be for you to take what we're going to consider from Peter's letter today home with you and ask yourself the three questions that you'll find in the worship guide that, that you received on your way in here. How do you know who you are? Question one. Where do you get your validation, your sense of self-worth? That's question two. And question three is where do you get your purpose? How do you know what your life is for? I want to take each of these questions up one by one through what Peter says in First Peter chapter 2. And I want to begin by reading a few verses this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read from First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Then I'm going to continue reading all the way through verse, um, through verse 10 this morning. That's what we'll consider together. This is the word of the Lord. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. You can be seated. How do you know who you are? That's the first question I want to invite you to consider. I think Peter's letter here speaks into, and that I would love for you to take with you and think about later today. And the big question we're asking is, who are you? But that's too quick. You can't get right there. One of the first things you need to know is, how would I even begin to answer that question of who am I? How, would I, how can I know who I am? Where do I get the information that I need to know who I am? How do you know who you are? I think that's what Peter's taking up in this. I think this is inviting us to consider through a major theme in the verses I just read for you. Now, I think the way to get at this, there's a lot going on in these verses. There's a lot of images thrown at you one by one by one by one. They don't always match up together. So, so what I want to do before we can get to this bigger question that I think is being asked here is I just want to tag a few things. Make sure that you understand some of the features of the passage we just read. Try to pull those to the surface for you so that you can see them. And then, and then once I've done that, just bear with me through, through this, this process where I try to put some things out there so that you can, you can recognize them. I want to come back and try to draw some things together from these pieces that come out of the passage we just read. I want to help you see that, that the, the impact of what he's saying about where a Christian gets their identity is life-changing for you, even revolutionary. Did you notice all the metaphors he's using? You're like stones. There's one. You're being built up into a spiritual house. There's one. You're like... You're like a holy priesthood. People who make sacrifices. Those are the first couple of verses we read. And you skip down to the end. He comes back to the same things. You start piling up even more images for who you are. I'll tell you who you are. This is how you can tell he's talking about identity. You are a chosen race. There's another one. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for his own possession. These metaphors are all over the place. What's he getting at? Well, one thing that's helpful to know here is that all of these have a context in the Old Testament. He's pulling from images that were used to describe Israel and Israel's system of worship. Basically, the, 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 the details of God's plan to be present with a people that would be his people. A people that would become a display to everyone who's around them of what it is to have God for your God. What it is to know that he protects you and provides for you what it is to have his love and to trust it and to just swim around in it as your whole ecosystem and habitat, to be loved by God. Israel was, was set aside, set apart from the nations of the world to be that kind of display. A lot of this language comes from that identity that God gave them, that they were to be, they, they were to, they were to be built around a house or a temple where God's presence dwelt that in that temple there were to be sacrifices offered to God, showing him how worthy he is, showing him that we trust in him and no one else to provide for us, that they were to be a holy people, his own people, 
that they were to be set aside as his possession. Now Peter is saying, that's you, Christian. You have that purpose. You are that temple, the place where he dwells. He dwells in you. You are that priesthood, a people who were set apart as holy to offer sacrifices to God through your whole life, showing how worthy and wonderful he is, that you are a chosen race, given the identity of God's friends and even God's children. A lot of these images are tied together by the function of being God's people, a place where he dwells, those who know him intimately and are his friends. That's where, that's, that's, that's where a lot of this is coming from. I, but I don't want to get bogged down. I actually, want to, I actually want to zoom out a little bit. I don't want to get bogged down in each individual image and in unpacking the function that comes with it. I actually think there's another point that's, that's a thread that runs through all the images that Peter wants us to see this morning and that has revolutionary impact for us. Besides the function of each of these images and where they come from, there's a theme right here on the surface that I want to make sure you notice. And in that theme is the key to the question I've asked you. How do you know who you are? Through all these shifting metaphors, through the house and the stones and the, the priesthood and the, the race and the people and the nation, through all of that, there's a main theme. It is God who is building. We're passive, becoming what he makes us. We're stones that he picks up and puts into a wall. And at the end of it, whatever it is, will testify to him as its builder. It's his house. It's his priesthood set apart wholly for him. We're his possession. This theme that comes through all the images is God and the centrality of God's purpose for this people that he's building. So what Peter is saying is that you know who you are because God tells you. You know who you are because God makes you to be it. You are what God builds. And all of it rests on Christ, the cornerstone. Do you pick up on that image that came through one of the quotes that we read from the Old Testament from Isaiah? Whatever you are is being built by God and it's being built on and around Jesus. Your identity comes from and holds up because of him. A cornerstone was a stone chosen by a builder to be the, the hub of whatever he was building. Every, it's the load-bearing stone, right? The thing won't stand, with, the building, whatever it is, won't stand without one. You've got to be careful what you choose and make sure it can bear the weight you're going to put on it. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the one around whom this building takes its shape and on whom this building rests for security. Jesus is who you are. That's what he's saying. As a Christian, you are who God says you are and makes you to be. Now, I want to make sure you don't miss the radical implications of, of this picture Peter is drawing for us for our identity. It was radical in Peter's time in one way. It's radical in our time in another way. But even though it's radical and unexpected and even a challenge to us, in it comes life-giving and liberating good news for you this morning. Let me say what I mean. In Peter's day, it was radical in one way. In our day, it was radical in another. It, recently, I came across um, a sociology. It was a book about identity. I was reading a book about identity. And it was talking about this sociologist, citing some other sociologists who used two different ways of understanding where identity comes from between traditional societies like Peter's and modern Western societies like the one that most of us have come up in. It talks about it as the difference between a river and an ocean. 
this image just really helped me. I'm going I'm to throw it at you and see if it helps you too. In a traditional society, like the one that Peter was writing into, like ancient Roman society, the tribal, rural areas that these people on the receiving end of this letter would have lived in, uh, people, th- think of, think of the, the identity that they lived with as something that they received, were born into, had given to them by a variety of external forces. Things like, uh, like their families, like the tribe that they belonged to, maybe the city and what it was known for in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Their occupations, you know, whether they came into a blacksmith family or a baker family or a farming family. You're given a role to play by your connection to a people and to a place and to a community. Your sense of yourself was like a river with a defined path that's bigger than you. It was flowing before you got into it. It's going to flow long after you're out of it. And you find your place inside its banks, inside of its flow. That's how you know who you are in in a traditional society. Peter's saying, not for you, not anymore. And you don't know who you are because of who your parents are or because of what you've always been told by the community around you or the role that they've chosen for you to play. You know who you are because God tells you who you are. You're being built up into a spiritual house. You are priests to the living God. You are chosen and precious. You are His. You once weren't, but now you are God's people. Radical good news. We live in modern Western society. Most of us do. Most of us have come up here. Our society is less like a river in the way that we find our identity and more like an ocean. So in our society, typically, we think, think, about, it, think about all of us as plopped down in the middle of a big, wide ocean. You can go any way you want. And it's only up to you to decide where you go. There's no river with a current that carries you along. You've got endless possibilities and no one but yourself to depend on for figuring out who to be. Figure out what you want to be and go be it. So how do you know who you are? Well, it certainly can't be decided by anybody outside of you. Nobody's going to provide you with a lane or energy to flow in, in it with it. In fact, we, we often resent the notion that somebody else might tell us who we are or should be. And, and, and we tend to celebrate. Our heroes tend to be the people who decide who they want to be and go be it. Our heroes chart their own paths. They stay true to themselves in the face of all sorts of external pressures. They won't be dictated to. I mean, our, our shelves are full of self-discovery books, right? There's a huge market out there for tools that can help you look within to find out who your truest self is and learn to express it rather than suppress it. And Peter's telling us this morning that for Christians anyway, you don't create your identity. You don't discover your identity. You receive your identity from God. An identity that's built and designed by Him. An identity created out of nothing. Poof! Like the world itself by his power and given to you as his gift. Now, maybe you're thinking at this point, oh, I'm out. If that's what Christians believe, then I don't want to be one. That sounds to me like suppression. That sounds like betrayal of your truest self, like a, like a reversion to a, a primitive version of identity, a kind of straitjacket, the kind that have led to oppression. Genuinely, straitjackets for identity have been out there leading to oppression for people based on gender and race and all sorts of other factors. And maybe this sounds to you like that kind of stereotyping that leads to abuse. But before you go further down that road, I want to encourage you to think with me a little further down this road 
about how and why this perspective on Christian identity, even though it is a challenge to what we may take for granted now, is actually liberating, not constraining. I don't think to to embrace Peter's view of who you are as a Christian means that the things that are unique about you aren't important. I don't think it means that. There's no question that you are irreplaceable and precious, that no one has the perspective that you have because no one else has had your experiences. You have a personality that may reflect others in some ways but won't be put into any box. You are precious and unique because you were made in God's image and he is precious. I'm not saying that these unique things are unimportant. What I'm saying, I think what Peter would, t- would have us to believe is that these unique things, the things that set you apart, the kind of things that we're much more likely to emphasize today than other people would have been before us, what we're trying to say is that these things won't work as your cornerstone, not gonna work. That you could be spending actually way too much time on yourself when what you need to look to is Jesus. Because however precious and interesting the unique things about you may be, and I don't want to minimize them, they're there. However precious they may be. If that's all you've got, friend, then you and everything true about you will die with you. And if you've built your life, your house of your life, on a cornerstone like your your unique personality or the things that you've been through, then you're building on something that can't bear the weight. You don't have a superstructure that can hold up your life over time. These things, however important they might be, cannot be ultimate for you if you want an identity that's secure and lasting. Don't forget where this passage falls. If you were with us last week, you know this passage falls on the heels of Peter presenting and then unpacking a passage from Isaiah chapter 40 where he warned that, that, that Christian hope is tied to recognizing that all flesh, all human lives are like grass and the best things about them, their glory is like the flower of the field. It is glorious, it's beautiful, but it just doesn't last. It withers and it falls. But the word of the Lord, that word that comes to you as a promise, a promise that you are loved and set apart and that that you in Christ can live as he does, that word, that word lasts forever. So what he's telling you now as he applies that message to identity is that anything that has nothing about you that has nothing to do with Jesus dies with you. But Christ is a cornerstone that nothing can shake. And if your life is built on that cornerstone, your life is secure. How do you know who you are? Peter's offering you a way. You can be who God says you are. You can be his, built on Jesus who will not ever die again. Christians accept that the most definitive thing about them is who God makes them in Christ. Yes, it's true that that means a sort of loss to you. Jesus said to follow me is to lose your life so any independent version of you created by you discovered by you that has nothing to do with Jesus you hand over to him when you become a Christian you swap it out for the cornerstone that is Christ himself and there is a loss to that a kind of death in that but Jesus said that those who lose their lives actually gain them 
It is him who, who dies that truly lives. And that's the offer that's given to you this morning. Accept who God makes you in Christ. That's how you know who you are. Now, I want to move on from that one and more quickly take up the second two questions that I put in front of you. So you'd be able to follow along on the worship guide that you received coming in here. A couple more questions that I think Peter's passage, Peter's section of the letter here, help us to, to wrestle with as we think about who we are and what Jesus has to do with who we are. So the next question to ask ourselves is, where do you get your validation? It's another key piece to identity. It's a, a sense of significance and value. We need self-worth. The Bible doesn't challenge that, that that's important to us or that it should be. We can't live without it. We crave it, and we're not wrong to. I think one of the, one of the big problems with a kind of build-it-for-yourself, do-it-yourself creation of who you are with that image of ourselves finding our identity in an ocean where no one else tells us where to go and we go swim where we want. One of the problems with that view of who we are and how we know is that it undersells how important it is to us how we're viewed by others. It just isn't the case that any of us cannot care what other people think. I know we say that. I know we celebrate that. We call each other that. I just don't think it works. It doesn't. You're not gonna not care what other people think. It matters to you. And that's because you, you were actually made, the Bible would tell you, you were made to seek self-worth from the validation or approval of somebody else outside of yourself. You weren't meant to stand alone. The problem is not that you want to be validated. You're not wrong to look for it outside of yourself. But everything depends on looking for validation in the right place. Your identity, your security, your stability in this life and the next depends on finding, accepting, looking for that validation in the right place and not the wrong places. Let me tell you more about what I mean. I want to I help. I want to I go, go deeper on verses 6 to 8 that we read earlier. This is where he's quoting all of these Old Testament passages. I want to help you make sure you can see what he's saying here in this string of quotes from the Old Testament and then why he would say this to these people and to us. What is he saying? Why would he say it? And I think once I've unpacked some of the details in those three verses, we'll be able to come back to this bigger question and you'll see where we're coming from on, on where you get your validation. So, so let me tell you what he's saying and then why? All three uh, Old Testament quotes come out in these verses, verses 6 to 8. Each verse has one at its heart. All three of them come from different places. And two of them are from Isaiah, but different chapters. One of them from a psalm, Psalm 118. Um, but, but they all have the same reference, a stone. And the first one, it's, a promise that God is laying in Zion and Jerusalem in the holy city, the city of the temple, a new cornerstone. Something new to build on and around and that it is chosen and precious. It's a reference to Jesus, to the Messiah. The, the next one comes from, from Psalm 118. There it's a stone that the builders rejected, now become the cornerstone. Again, a, a reference to the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus, celebrated in the New Testament as the one who was promised and now come. And then a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, back to Isaiah. This stone, the rejected one, those who've tossed it aside trip over it. And it is their downfall. These three uh, stone images are all about Jesus. And in each case, what he's pointing to is, is the preciousness of this stone, but also the prospect that this stone might be rejected that its true value may not be on the surface, that these things, the things are not always what they seem. Peter's drawing our attention through these three stone references 
to the reaction to this stone. What he's saying is those who accept it or believe in him, those who see this stone and want it and build on it, they will never be put to shame. In fact, they'll be honored. That's what he's saying. Those who see, receive, embrace this stone will be validated, vindicated at the last day. Those who reject this stone, they will stumble over it and it will be the end of them. That's the dividing line that Peter's drawing our attention to. One stone, two ways to receive it. He wants us thinking about how we're reacting to Christ. He's talking about, really, to put it this differently, he's talking about the difference between believing in Jesus as the only Savior you can trust and rejecting Jesus as a fraud. Imagine builders pouring over these cut stones that were so important to, to buildings in this ancient world, trying to choose which one will make the best sense as the foundation for the building. Imagine them deciding, evaluating them. They're, they're looking at each one, trying to decide how worthy it is, how dependable and trustworthy. And imagine some builders see it and they think, this is it, this is it, this is it exactly. This is the one I've been looking for. But then imagine others seeing that same stone and finding only its flaws. I can't trust this. This won't hold me up and tossing it aside. They see that same stone and they think that's a fraud. If you think that stone can hold you, if that's what it claims to be able to do, then, then it's a fraud. We've got to move on. We can't be deceived. Imagine that process and now think, why do you, th- and ask this question, why, why do you think that Peter would put this image in front of us, in front of his readers and in front of us? Why is he trying to help us see that there's two ways to respond to this stone, that many will actually reject it as fraudulent, as, 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 as unworthy of trust, and that we should accept it anyway. Why would they need to hear it? Why would we need to hear that? I think it's because Peter knows implicitly that reputation matters to us. How we're viewed by other people does matter for how we understand and assess ourselves. That was true then, it's true now. We all want to be validated and that can be a problem if you're considering identifying with Jesus. That can be a problem because it could be a barrier to you to commit to him knowing that Jesus was shamed, killed, publicly humiliated and literally driven out of the world by the powers that be. And if what you want is to be an insider to the powers that be, then Jesus won't look like your ticket. Being a Christian in Peter's day meant shame for you, maybe for your whole family. It was not a path to the honor that they craved. Uh, earlier this week, I was reading an old classic in church history from, from back in the early 80s by a guy named Robert Wilkin, a book called Christians as the Romans Saw Them. He takes some of the only references we have outside of the Bible or Christian writings from Roman documents that have made it all the way to us and describes what those Romans were saying about Christians as they were trying to get their minds around who these people were and what they're up to and what, and what this whole movement was. One of the, uh, one of the documents that's, that he includes and talks about actually comes from the same region that this letter is, is writing to. It's in Turkey, known as Bithynia or Pontus. It was like a, like a, a Roman sub-state. It had its own governor. It's like a, a part of their empire that was divided up to better rule over it. 
And uh, he, so, th- so this guy that, that wrote this document comes from the same place almost the same time as those Peter's writing to. And he's killing these Christians. This is a little bit later after opposition gets more intense. He describes, here's how I decided to deal with him. He's writing a letter to the emperor, updating him on how things are going, explaining why he's killing people for things they believe and won't recant. And the way he describes Christianity in this letter is as no more than a superstition. Superstition because it didn't fit with what the Romans believed about the world, with what they understood to be the highest values or the the important ethics that guided their behavior. Christians were superstitious. This was no, being with Jesus in their day could mean mean death at worst, but but, but short of death, all sorts of ostracism and, and not least just embarrassment. Just the shame of believing something that was seemed to be ridiculous by the, by, by the powers that be that you otherwise would have wanted to impress. And I, I get we're not in the same boat that they were. I mean, the, the, the risks for many of us living here where we do and when we do are not as, as severe for sure. But I do know that many of you affiliate with a university context here in our city where Christian faith in general, or to, to be more specific, the, the notion of a resurrected body the notion that, that, that a God could speak to you in words that, though 2,000 years old, still speak truly, even perfectly. The notion that, that, there, that there's a God, like a, a single, sovereign, personal God behind everything that exists, behind everything in the material world. Or the notion that, that ethics, especially sexual ethics, might be controlled by some sort of ancient document rather than by our free and natural impulses of our autonomous human selves. Where these notions are ridiculous. Where they, they could cost you honor, hurt your reputation. Friends, maybe even affect your careers. I don't think that that's saying too much. They could affect your careers were it known about you that you believed in things like this. So Peter is writing this word to you, just like to his own time and place, so that you won't be surprised when you realize that Being with Jesus, identifying with him could mean that like him, you get rejected. Maybe a primary reason for you right now, not being a Christian, is just looking around and seeing how many people reject it. Maybe it isn't just about wanting to be impressive and knowing that this isn't your ticket, but just the sheer weight of the rejection of Jesus, just looking around and seeing how many prominent elite power brokers think Jesus is crazy. That weighs on you. Maybe you can wonder intuitively if, if you've never even put words to it how it could be true if all these respectable people don't take it seriously. I think what we're finding here in this text is a warning that Christ has often been rejected, that him being accepted by the powers that be was never part of his plan, that rejection actually moved his plan forward And that those who follow him should also expect to be rejected by him, but that things are not always what they seem. That God loves confounding the expectations of the wise and the powerful. And that just because Jesus is rejected now does not mean he always will be. The other major reason that I think Peter is pointing us here to the stone, how it's received now and what, it, what those who identify with it can expect in the future is that he wants us to know that our need for validation, 
The same need that could tempt us to reject Jesus because those who are with Jesus may be ashamed at some point. That our need for validation is actually wonderfully fulfilled in the promise of the gospel. Peter's pointing us here because he's promising that, that, that you should expect rejection now, yes, following a rejected Lord who told us we'd be treated like he was, but one day, his vindication will be yours. One day, everyone will see him for who he is. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. And Peter is saying, if he is your cornerstone, though you may be rejected now, the honor is for you who believe. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Friends, there is a warning and a beautiful offer in these words. The warning is that there is one great identity marker that divides all people all over the face of the world and in this room right now. More important, more fundamental than anything else true about you, you are someone who accepts Jesus or rejects him. Those two categories are the difference between life and death. That is a warning, friend. But it's also an offer. Whoever believes in him, and that means you, will never be put to shame. Whoever believes in him, as you can do right now, will be honored on the day of his return. When every eye will see what's been true all along, he is chosen. He is precious. There is no one like him. And what that identity will free you from is the sense that you've always got to be chasing validation from other people. The restless quest for honor, the shifting standards and foggy expectations that make it so difficult to see where you stand and to be at peace. You're done with that as a Christian. Because you belong to a God who is always and only for you. Who looks at you, sees his son and says, Chosen, precious, mine. So you're out of the rat race. Christians get their validation from the God who made them and sent his son to redeem them. They see themselves through his eyes. Will you? One last question is the shortest Where do you get your purpose? What's your life for? How do you know? What's the point or the target that your life aims at? That is an inescapable question when we're thinking about who we are and we're faced with a world full of choices. And in these final two verses that we've read, verses 9 and 10, Peter points to the central purpose in every Christian life. When you are what God has built you to be, when your validation as a person comes from his love for you, then the chief purpose of your life comes into focus. What is your life for? Your life is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness that was your home into his marvelous light. What you were was not a people. What you were was no mercy. What you were told a story about you. What you are tells a story about him, his power, 
his grace and his mercy to people who have no right to expect it. Did you notice the way these verses work? It's a tall stack of images. We talked about that earlier for your new identity as a Christian. It's all set up by God's grace and power in your life. Your chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. But it all builds to that central phrase, that. And here he's given us the purpose. All this identity that's been given to you as a gift is all for something. And it isn't a mystery what it's for. You have been given this identity, he's saying, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. The purpose for the house built by him, for the race chosen by him, for the priesthood set aside to serve him, for the nation that lives under his kingship, for the people that are his possession. Their purpose is to live their lives as a trophy case for his goodness and mercy. Their lives are before and after stories that should raise questions. How'd you get from there to there? You weren't once had no mercy now you have mercy you weren't sworn of people now you're a people you once weren't chosen or precious now you are how did you get from there to there and to tell the truth that this before and after story is all about him I know who I am because I fit into his story when I tell you about me I'm telling you about him here's how one pastor put it I love the way he put it In other words, he, this is a quote, has given us our identity in order that his identity might be proclaimed through us. God has made us who we are so we could make known who he is. Our identity is for the sake of making known his identity. The meaning of our identity, or I would even say the purpose of it, what it's for, is that the excellency of God might be seen in us. Now, of course, there's a lot more work that needs to be done to get closer to earth than this. Uh, you got to get specific about what it would look like for you and your life and your opportunities and your responsibilities to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of, light, out of darkness and into light. And I want to send you to your friends to do that. I mean, one of the beauties of Christian community is that we get to do that kind of work together. We get to go down all the way to earth with people who know us and are willing to ask us questions and to speak truthfully to us when we ask of them. So I want to send you to your friends to talk about what it would look like for you in your circumstances to proclaim his excellencies through your life. But I do want to make sure just how you see how powerful this is. Again, it's a radical shift from what they would have expected, but it's radically good news. In Peter's day, people live for glory. And we do too, but we hide it better. And one of the, this, that same, uh, the same book that I mentioned earlier, that Wilkin book, where he's reading, uh, talking about these early Christian testimonies or, or references to them in old Roman uh, documents. The, the guy named Pliny that I was talking about earlier. Well, there's some other documents that this man quotes, our, the historian quotes, where he's talking about how important it is to him to make his mark. He, he notes the fact that I have a job now. He said that Cicero, one of the f- most famous orators and philosophers and what have you in all of Rome I have the same job Cicero had and I'm younger than he was when he had it so maybe I'll be able to put my mark on Roman history and my name will ring out the way that Cicero's does he's got him quoting himself to a friend saying that that's what he was hoping for from his life and what Wilkins says in this book he says that his comments sound vain and self-serving but the sensibilities of Romans were different from ours they openly praised their own accomplishments they weren't embarrassed to seek glory so into that expectation for what life is for making that mark ringing out through Roman history. Peter says, your whole life is to make his excellencies known, not yours. 
You're not about trying to pump up your accomplishments. You're not beefing up what you're known for. Your, your, your whole life is about him. And that's just as, just as radically out of step for us, isn't it? We're still just as much about making a mark, building a reputation, even if we hide it better. Peter is saying, you're out of that game. Does that feel like a loss of identity, a loss of individuality? It is, sort of. It is humbling to know that your life isn't about you. But it's also exalting. Because what Peter's putting in front of you is the purpose for which you were always made, the purpose for your truest self, made in the image of the God who made you, to testify truly about him. And through what Christ has done for us, you can actually fulfill the purpose of your life. You can get there. Guaranteed. He'll get you there. That's part of his promise. Any purpose that focuses on you being known, on you making your mark, well, it belongs in that Isaiah 40 quote that we talked about earlier from the last chapter. It's just the grass. The flower of the grass is the best you can hope for that you shine with a really pretty, brilliant color for like three weeks and then it's gone. That's the best you can hope for, for a life that makes your mark. But if your purpose of your life is to proclaim the excellencies of the one who is eternally unchanging, beautiful, glorious, and always living, and if you have attached yourself to him and his intent to make his name known to all, all the face of the earth, then you have now been folded up into something that can't fail. You can achieve your purpose. Yes, I have to accept that I can't build anything time on it, destroy. But building something that lasts is not my problem. I'm God's possession. I'm his building. He's on that. He'll take care of the lasting part. What he's given to me is to embrace what has always been my chief end. Not to build something awesome, the envy of a watching world, but to enjoy him and to glorify him forever. Father, I pray that you would help us to accept this identity given to us as a gift, not to shrink back from the cost to us that it implies, to accept that because we know that it's worth it. I pray that you would give each one of us what we need to trust in Jesus and to rest our lives on him, and then that you would give us what we need to see how his identity shapes ours. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.